Welcome to the Arise podcast, conversations on faith, race, justice, gender, and the church. This is Danielle Castillejo coming to you with a special episode on critical race theory. This was actually a part of an Instagram live I did from my personal Instagram page, which you can find in the notes at Luis Danielle Castillejo, and thought that our community is looking for definitions of critical race theory. What actually is it? What actually isn't it? And why are we suddenly talking about a theory that has been around for an extended period of time? And so wanted to address some of those other narratives that are happening in our community. And we have a special guest with us. You're going to meet her. Thanks for tuning in. Oh, and one more important note about this episode. It was recorded on Instagram Live. And unfortunately, mid-recording, I realized that my voice and the microphone that I was recording through for Instagram Live was not functioning properly. So at times I may be choppy and you'll hear me in this episode try to paste in and cut in some of the comments that I was making. So my name is Rebecca and I live in Virginia. I'm originally from California where I attended UCLA School of Law. Um, spent some time in Florida where I got a master's degree um, in marriage and family counseling. That's a lot. So you're also a uh, not quite. I'm at, I don't um, function as a licensed therapist, but I do a fair amount of pastoral care um, and counseling underneath um, my licensed, I'm licensed as a minister as well. That's right. We met at the Allender Center. That's correct. We did. That's correct. I thought that we would record a little chat with Rebecca about helping us to define what critical race theory actually is and what's going on in the world today. So we're about to engage in that conversation. That sounds great. Uh, so you're asking my sense of what is critical race theory. Um, that's a good question. Um, and, I, and I'm going to repeat something that I heard from Professor Kimberly Crenshaw recently about um, how important it is to ask what it is before we step into a posture that might be hostile or defensive or even accepting of, of, of a, a category or an idea um, so that we can have informed discussions and conversations around the pros and cons of, of really any thought process. So that being said, um, critical race theory basically is, is a way of thinking or engaging a topic, an event, a field of study and asking the question, is there racial dynamics at play in this field, in this scenario, is that move beyond individual intentions of the players that might be involved and really look at like structurally, are there things sort of baked into the cake in this perspective, in this event, in this field of study um, that really are about people making decisions on the basis of race. Um, oftentimes to the detriment of um, of someone that's a member of the minority group uh, or the group that's disempowered in this scenario. And so that's really all it is. It was started by legal scholars in the 70s, um, really when they started to look at the gains they thought would come through the Civil Rights Act, through Brown for Supportive Education, only to find that while we made gains in the legislation and the law, those gains were not being felt or seen in real time experience of people on the ground. Um, and, and the question was why? 
And so legal scholars like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw began to ask, right, is there a problem if we apply a, a neutral sounding law um, to a scenario where racism is already baked into the structure? And if we apply a neutral law, um, they found that it, we will not actually get at the structure, um, the racism that's built into the structure. So standard, like classic law school uh, sort of scenario would be uh, the, the issue of hate speech, right? What we now know as hate speech. But, but, but back then, right, uh, for example, you might see a cross burning, a case in front of a court because there's a cross burning on the lawn of a, a, of a Black establishment or a Black family. Um, and the law says uh, there's freedom of speech. I can say what I want and you can say what you want. The law on its face is neutral. Um, it doesn't mention race at all. It simply says all speech is free. However, if we apply that basic legal principle to a cross burning, we don't take into account that the cross burning itself was a symbol that was meant to strike terror in the hearts of African-Americans and newly freed um, slaves and others. And so we, we won't get at the structural racism built into the, the symbol and the structure if we simply say all speech is free. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So basically, understanding that critical race theory is a way of theorizing and looking at practice and practical things that are happening saying is racism for instance because it's critical race theory baked into structure and therefore even law for instance you're talking about the hate speech law we might concern even if we apply that we don't get the whole so basically, I'm trying to summarize what Rebecca's talking about here with critical race theory. That it, the point is, if we have a neutral law and we try to apply that neutral law across the races, such as hate speech, and there's a cross burning, it's not going to have the same impact across all races. So we're talking about how does the law accurately address what's actually happening? In the legal field, I'd say in recent years, right, other disciplines have adopted the same sort of questioning process to see what happens in other fields. And so, for example, you've heard a lot of conversation around COVID-19 and the way that it disproportionately impacted Black and Brown communities, right? And so there are members of the health profession that have started to take sort of a critical race theory approach to that and say, are there things baked into our health system and to our economic system that actually produced the disparate results that we're seeing in COVID-19. And if we ask those questions, can we actually undo some of the inequities and imbalances that are built into the healthcare system and the economic system so that we don't see these kinds of disparate impacts going forward? Yeah, and so the question isn't so much about uh, an attack group of people. The theory is really, I hear from on a certain group of people, but a way of looking at thing like, hey, we have a record of the people these laws that had. Thanks for bearing with me as it gets super choppy in this section, but I don't want you to miss the idea that critical race theory is addressing race 
and that when Rebecca talks about the healthcare system and other systems, we're talking about what's actually located, positioned in our law, who's made the laws, and who's benefiting from them. We're not actually attacking a certain group of people. We're actually saying, hey, can we look at the disparities? Can we look at the numbers and the data? And then how do we care for one another well? We need to look at the history and say like, so we can have a more or is that what you're saying? You might... That's exactly right. I think it's a really good point that you make that this is not about um, attacking an individual. It's actually a method of getting at racism that is built into the structure. And in that way, it sort of transcends individual actions. And so take, for example, the case of Darren Chauvin, the cop who was just convicted of the murder of George Floyd, right? You can look at that scenario and say, that was the individual act of one police officer. And so if we address that particular case, George Floyd um, and his murder and Darren Chauvin, and we send Darren Chauvin to prison, now we no longer have a problem. Uh, the problem has been solved, right? But, but, but the, the issue is there are far too many George Floyds and there are far too many Darren Chauvins across police um, communities all across this country. And um, as a matter of fact, Today is the anniversary of the death of Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. So I've just been mindful even today of how many names and how many scenarios, right? And so if we simply stop at Darren Chauvin, then we don't get at the question of, do we have a problem with the way that we imagine policing in this country? Do we have a problem with the way that we imagine innocent behavior as threatening or criminal when the actor in that scenario has black skin? Um, and so critical race theory would invite us to look at the structure of policing um, all together so that we can actually engage not an individual person to villainize a person, but to look at how as a system and as a country, we imagine these, these um, issues and how we move to solve them. Yeah, and I don't even really hear, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is the villainization of a system. It's more this perspective of we are here now. We don't want to continue here now. And as a historian myself, it's important to understand the stories of where we came from. How can we make decisions going forward that move us from where we are now? It's right, exactly. I'll, I'll use a, um, an analogy that I heard Professor Crenshaw use um, recently, which is the question of asbestos, right? Mm -hmm. In our day and age, we no longer use asbestos because me the medical profession, the science profession has discovered that a, a, asbestos is a carcinogenic. But the truth is, right, there was a generation where we built every building in this country with asbestos in it, right? Or, or lead paint, like you name it. And, and so there are hundreds and thousands of buildings all across this country where asbestos is built into the building. Right, and, and you don't usually know that until something happens to stir it up and then and then and now we got a problem because someone has been exposed to, to a carcinogenic. Well, would we just decide we're no longer, we're gonna ignore that? Uh, we're not gonna ask the question if there's asbestos in the building? Of course not. When we discover that it's baked into the building, we will move to remediate it. And granted, that process is costly, 
and for for the individual or the family or the company that has to pay for that remediation is probably painful and expensive but it is the right thing to do to protect generations going forward it is the right thing to do to make that building safe for the people who will inhabit it and so it's sort of the same thing in critical race theory uh, we will be moving along. Things may seem as though everything is fine. It's just a normal sunny day. And then something happens and we are again confronted with the fact that there are things baked into the cake in this country that actually cause harm to people and communities. And the question is, when we encounter it, will we have the guts to pay the cost to remediate it? Yeah, I think I love that. I start to tell a story that relates to Rebecca's story about asbestos. It's a really good example. For instance, my husband is a carpenter, and in order to deal with asbestos in buildings that they might be remodeling or taking down or encountering in their work as a surprise, they've had to do extensive training. He had to take classes. He had to pass tests. He had to know the right equipment and gear to use. So in essence, my husband had to take the, the problem of asbestos seriously had to educate himself and really address like, what's the problem here? What are the dangers here? When we look at a story like Ahmaud Arbery and the fact that he was hunted down in public and that it was covered over for a long time before there was any justice or any semblance or inkling or hope of justice, we have to address why did that happen? What's in our system that allowed that to happen? And what are we going to do about it moving forward? So I don't really hear that we're attacking any group of people, but I think there's an invitation for change. To understand what we're confronting and where we're going with it. So we can actually address and make changes. It's so important for us to stay present, stay in our bodies. And when we encounter the fear that is, it's so scary to talk about race, to try to stay present. Yeah, I, I really agree with you, the, the question about fear mongering. And, and I, I kind of think about it this way. I mean, you can come at this from like a political standpoint, right? In the sense of we the people um, in a commitment to form a more perfect union right and, and and really decide are we going to be a country politically and socially that works toward becoming that more perfect union that we profess to be and if that's true when we uncover these moments where there's a, a grave imperfection in the union will there be the political capital to actually address that imperfection uh-huh. either we're going to do it or we aren't right and those moments come up all the time right i would say the country is in one right now in terms of what to do about afghanistan Mm -hmm. right and then the question is will we have the political guts and the will to address it i mean and the same is true for 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 racial issues right i mean unfortunately uh the history of slavery and genocide um against not just african americans but native americans and latino americans and asian americans runs deep in this country and there will be moments of our national conscience where we are confronted with the reality of that that stain and what it what it brings for even present day generations so will we have the political capital to engage it
Um, and and that, that really shouldn't be a moment for fear mongering. It should be a moment for bravery and courage to face who we are, where we've been, what we've done, and then move to be better, right? But I, but I also think you could look at this from a theological standpoint, right? I mean, I, I think there's the question of, um, there are moments as people who are, are who believe in God and who move by faith when we are confronted with our capacity, not just as individuals, but as people groups, as a country, as a nation, to fall short of what God would intend for the way that we treat our fellow man. And when we're confronted with that moment, is there the, the, the capacity, um, sort of the spiritual strength, the ego strength, to face that moment and decide that it's actually true, that greater is he who resides in me. Um, and, and by his strength and with his wisdom, I can face this moment, right? And then bring the kingdom of God and its economy to bear in a scenario. And so that means um, I, th there's one, one place where I would agree with the opponents of critical race theory, who argue that we should not be, we should not be, um, segregated by race you're absolutely right we should not be <laughs> like i agree with you 125 percent we should not be divided among by race that is contrary to the kingdom of god right it's contrary to in revelation 7 and 9 that says every tribe and every tongue shall be present at the throne of grace and so can we get there in these moments when we realize that as a country we have done grave damage to that image in revelation 7 9 is there the spiritual strength the, and the ego strength to face that moment and say, we're going to be better? Yeah. I, I... A lot of folks are going to call this white fragility. The inability to face our history and our past and the inability to act in the moment. And I think I want to push back on that concept. I don't get much of a chance to put back, push back on it here in this conversation. Let's give those places in ourselves, those younger places that didn't grow up learning about race, especially if we're from dominant culture, a chance to grow. I don't know that it's so much that we're fragile, but that we haven't given ourselves a chance to grow. So when we encounter the conversation of critical race theory, what I go on to explain is that I think we feel really small and really young because we don't understand what's been going on, especially if we're from dominant culture. I knew I grew up half my life thinking that way, and I'm Mexican indigenous. So I don't think this is an area for shame, and there is an area for repentance. It's also an area to say, what do I, what do I know? What, do I, what don't I know? And then it's an invitation to learn and embrace what we do know now and make change. Racism is big and it's little and it's in between. It's like getting a thousand little paper cuts. And if we're paper cutting our neighbor, I mean, first we need to stop, but then we need to tend to those wounds in an honorable way. Paper cuts. Uh, I don't think that revelation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you raise a good point about the, you know, the question of fragility, right? Um, and, and I think what often happens, the response that we hear is like, well, I didn't own slaves, right? Or I, I you know, I'm not racist. I have a Mexican friend. Okay, okay, right? Um, but, and, and, and if the text actually allowed us to just have the conversation on, on, on the grounds of like what I personally have done, like that'd be 
that'd be nice, right? Only that's not in the text, right? Like the Christian faith is built on this idea of the capacity of one to stand in the gap from many. Otherwise, the cross and the person of Jesus Christ is, is irrelevant, right? Like the whole value of the Christian faith is that one man, Jesus, who lived a sinless life has the capacity to provide a substitutionary death for all of us, right? But what's also in the text is that the call of scripture for, the, for, for those of us to stand in the gap, not just for the salvation of all, but also for the repentance of all. It's all over the text in the prophets of old where one is asked to stand in the gap for many and that God honors that naming of that sin, right? And then he moves to, um, to repair and to restore in, in the honor of that. And so I think that's the will we have to find as Christians. We can't just take the easy way out and decide, well, because I didn't personally do it, that's something that my ancestors did. I have no no stake in this game and I have no skin in it. That is, that's actually not in the text. Oh, I mean, I love that. That brings us to the part of the we mentioned at the beginning. Why is this across the United States? Like, I'm about to introduce the next part of our conversation. Why is critical race theory a hot topic right now? I mean, we've already established that the theory is many years old. It's been around for a long time, and it's in regards to the legal system and has been applied to other systems. We've also established that it isn't an attack on anyone, but an invitation to change systems. So what's going on? Racism is baked into the system. We're asking asking ourselves and how that is, how we change it. What's your thought? hot topic button you're asking why all of a sudden is it the hot topic yeah um i I think the answer lies in sort of the cyclical nature of 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 racism right ta-nehisi coates in his book eight years in power like talks about that he talks about how there's sort of this rhythm of one step forward two steps back one step forward, one step back. And you can sort of track it through history and see the advancement or the gains in in in, in um, rights in this country, and then like the backlash that comes with it, right? And so if you go all the way back to the Emancipation Proclamation and the ending of slavery and the beginning of Reconstruction, there's significant, massive gains in Black life of newly freed slaves in the two years following the end of the Civil War. Right. And then there is a huge backlash that ends with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and the invention of black codes and what will become Jim Crow. Right. And you can sort of see the rhythm. You can see the advancements made by the civil rights movement in, in the 60s. Right. And, and, and then like the massive retraction of that um, into, into the 70s. And so I think sort of what we're looking at now is really the country's reaction, and in some way, white America's reaction, white evangelicalism's reaction to, to, to a summer of reckoning last year, right? To this moment where not only the country held its collective breath, but the world's eyes were on America because of the actions of Darren Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd on national television, right? Um, 
Like it, it, it's not just my word against your word or he said versus she said. It like it's on tape for all to see, right? And there, there's a sense in the country, this is so much bigger than George Floyd. It's so much bigger than Darren Chauvin. And then there are some, some gains that were made, um, some steps forward that we took in the collective consciousness of this country. And yet before those can even be cemented or codified in law, through voting rights acts and things like that, there's a massive backlash. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm gonna refer to something that I heard from Kimberly Crenshaw recently, is it, this idea that like um, what has happened really is the plucking of this obscure doctrine called critical race theory that really was reserved for the legal field. Um, so you, this is not something taught in K through 12 education. It's not something that's part of our everyday lexicon. Like it's this sort of narrow thing that, that happens in the halls of hallowed institutions in this country. And, and, um, and, and there are people on the right who sort of took this uh, unfamiliar obscure category and then just poured all this information into it that wasn't actually accurate. That, 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 that in many ways is just outright lies. And in many ways, a campaign that was created intentionally um, really to undo some of the gains that were, were, were gained last summer. And so I think what you're looking at is the, is the repetition of that cyclical nature of, wait a minute, wait a minute. But there's too many brown people in power. There's too much information. Like we have pulled the curtain back on the matrix holy crap, there's a red pill and a blue one, right? And we're never supposed to know that. Like that's that's the insidiousness of racism is supposed to be hidden from the naked eye. We're not supposed to be able to see that that's what's happening. And that's what happened last summer. Like it was on tape for all to see across the world. And now people feel uncomfortable. They feel exposed. And, and their reaction to that exposure is to cover it up instead of having the individual and the collective integrity to actually face the moment and choose to be better. Yeah, that's exactly what has happened in my community. And the story I'm attempting to tell that follows is about Stonechild Chiefstick, a native man that was murdered by police on July 3rd in the midst of a huge crowd because supposedly he was holding a screwdriver. There's been articles, research, there was no prosecution of the officer, and as our community's been attempting to repair, it's been difficult, I won't lie. Supposedly holding a screw, four or five cops surrounding mm. crowd of people around kids. And since that time, there's been effort among the indigenous tribal communities in our area and the police department in Hallsbo to form some sort of bridge to form way back another. And so we have it's difficult to hear in this section what I'm trying to explain. I'm talking about a local congregation, a large church in our area, inviting a known speaker from a group that's on the hate watch list by the SPLC. <laughs> to speak on critical race theory, and which makes this conversation so important as our community has been trying to repair and deal with everything that's happened. It didn't matter how much we reached out to this organization directly or indirectly. We didn't get any response. 
and we have a man come into for hate that's or not actually admitted on the panel he doesn't know about critical wikipedia and, mm -hmm. and things apart he comes by the way what i'm attempting to say here it's hard to hear but the guy that was speaking on critical race theory well his definition came from wikipedia so clearly he really didn't know what critical race theory was he comes and the wound just gets ripped open mm -hmm. and working unity bridges you know behind the and i think what's so hard for me is that the backlash that we're experiencing that you're saying it's not just collective it's personal to this and the backlash that we experience that bodies of color experience as dominant culture is reeling from the awareness that rebecca so you know brilliantly described what I'm trying to say here is it's not just this collective backlash where we're absorbing it evenly. It, it's a very personal backlash. I mean, it hits literal bodies, like specifically in our area. And I know it does in other areas as well of the country. Black folks, white folks, folks, um, people, the tribes, our local tribes here, there were people, um, Filipino. I mean, like, I could go on. There was representation at some of these meetings. And and so to have hours poured into where there's listening and healing going on, and then to bring in someone that's actually used in his, some of his blogs as Native American access to freedom of to argue that that it's hurt Christianity. You have someone like that coming mm -hmm. in murder that hasn't been that hasn't been healed yet. And what happens with backlash is it becomes, you know, and I think, I think what you say, it's cyclical, but I think it's very personal to the people hitting. Personal families, yeah. like George Floyd or Emmett Hill, you know, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I thought of when you were talking. Yeah, I think you're right that, like, we have to keep our eye on both what's happening sort of collectively um in in the collective conscious and story of the country of the people groups involved and then we also have to remember like at the end of the day these are individual people their sons and daughters their fathers and mothers and sisters and aunts and uncles right and people's lives are forever changed um not for the better right um and 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 i say that thinking about you know george floyd's daughter right and and, and like the beauty of the moment where she says, you know, daddy changed the world. Mm -hmm. And she's right, he did, but at grave cost to her and the rest of her family because they will spend the rest of their lives without him. Mm -hmm. And he will be for, it won't be like, like moving, like, because uh, everywhere they go, people will know that. Yes. Yeah. So where do you, yes. like, you think about step forward again here we're transitioning the conversation what are the steps forward and rebecca's going to share some of her insight one i think we got to note the cyclical nature and watch for it 
right? And I'm in everyone, white, black, brown, Asian, everybody, watch for that, right? And then we got some choices to make about how we're gonna respond to, to that cyclical move, right? And so, the, and, and this is the part where I think, you know, it's important to, to note, I'm not talking about villainizing individuals, right? I'm, I'm talking about like recognizing that in this country, there is a system at play that judges people on the basis of race, right? And class and gender and some other things. And so, and it's baked into the system. And so that means we gotta be intentional about watching for it, looking for it, right? And we have to be willing to, to deal with the cost of actually remediating, right? And I'm back to your story about your husband as a contractor and the fact that like he had to train, he had to learn some things, he had to read and pay attention and be educated on how do, what are the contours of the kind of harm that asbestos causes? How does that happen and how do we prevent it? Right. And so we got to do some of that work individually and collectively, which means we have to be able to have conversations like the one you and I are having now. Right. It's calm. It's reasonable. Right. There, there's no sense of villainizing the other side. Right. That we can have a reasoned, well thought out, educated conversation about difficult things. Um, and then we got to move to practically respond to to things when we see them. And so we we do need to have conversations about what has happened to policing in this country. We do have to have conversations about what's going on with the education system and the economic system and the healthcare system, right? And, and we have to be able to critically think through those things and then be willing to pay the cost of, of what remediation really looks like. It costs money and time and talent and effort. And we gotta be willing to, to, to step into all those things individually and collectively as a country, if we want to be a more perfect union, if we want to actually have the kingdom of God come to bear on earth as it is in heaven. This again. Yes, let's, it's a pleasure always to work alongside you, to critically think through things with you. Um, so I hope this is the beginning of many conversations. Yeah, me too. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this conversation on the Arise podcast. Again, you can find the full length link to the original conversation on my Instagram page. And you'll notice as you listen to that, that it's broken up just because of internet connection. So I'm sorry about that. We'll work, I'll work on that in future if I do any more Instagram lives. But didn't want you to miss the golden nuggets that we had and we could hear well in part, as part of this conversation.